0: The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Good evening and uh, welcome to Clerical Conversations on the Crisis, uh, Episode 5 on the Restoration Radio Network. Uh, I'm your host, Nicholas Wandsbutter, and I'm joined today by our guest, Bishop Donald Sanborn, uh, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida, and by Father Anthony Ciccata, uh, Assistant uh, Pastor at St. Gertrude the Great Church in Westchester, Ohio, and also a teacher of Canon Law, Liturgy, and Scripture at the aforementioned Most Holy Trinity Seminary. So uh, thank you, uh, Your Lordship and Father, for joining us for another uh, episode of this show.
1: Thanks, nice to be here.
0: And uh, our uh, topic for tonight's show is canonizations. the Catholic teaching on canonizations, and the recently announced, quote, canonization, unquote, Uh, that's impending for John Paul II, uh, Carol Wojtyla, who was the Vatican II claimant to the papacy for uh, a number of years, from 1978 up until 2005. Now, uh, clerical conversations on the crisis and Restoration Radio are uh, uh, underwritten by... uh, True Restoration Media, and you can find out more about that by visiting truerestoration.org. And I would uh, just remind our listeners that uh, this entire radio network, including uh, this particular show, are completely listener-supported, and the entire uh, endeavor that we're putting forward, the the whole radio network is something that's never been attempted before in the half-century since the end of Vatican II. So it's something uh, important and exciting, but we do rely on listener donations to help support us. So uh, I'll give you some more information about that at the end of the show. Hopefully you will have uh, found the show interesting and worthwhile by then and uh, may may be uh, in a position to offer us some uh, small donation to assist with this work. And we will be taking calls. Uh, during this show, uh, although I'm not going to open us up for phone calls until a little bit later in the show, since there's some things that I think we need to cover off before that. Although, uh, you can leave a question on our Twitter account, uh, that the handle being at True Restoration. That's all one word, T-R-U-E-R-E-S-T-O-R-A-T-I-O-N. So, uh, all, all that being said, uh We've got a, a lot of information to cover, and uh, we'll delve right into it. So, uh, I think uh, it's important to lay the groundwork for our listeners before we start speaking specifically about uh, Carol Wojtyla, also known as John Paul II, and speak about the definition, the Church's definition of what is a saint. Uh, per, uh, perhaps uh, Bishop Sanborn, could you uh, enlighten us a bit on that?
2: Yes, a saint is somebody uh, that has led a life of heroic virtue uh, in this world. This means that he was just not an ordinarily good Catholic, merely that, but that he had uh, he practiced virtue to a heroic that is a very extraordinary degree. And the the Church, because of that, and because there is proof by miracle that he does have a power of intercession with God in heaven, uh, the Church declares that person to be in heaven and to be worthy of emulation, that is, imitation, uh, by the faithful. So it is not merely a declaration that someone has gone to heaven because he's a nice person and he basically kept the commandments it is uh to pick out someone as being uh worthy of of imitation and as uh, someone who really leads the path to heaven for us and shows us the path to heaven and and uh, these of course are the martyrs and the confessors and the virgins and when you consider how many Catholics have lived in the history of the world, the number of saints is really very small. Uh, the, the number of people that uh, actually practice this heroic virtue is quite small. Uh, the Catholic Church has existed for uh, over 2,000 years, and uh, really, they're you know they're a relatively small number of of saints. So, this is a rare thing that someone. Uh, has these qualities that uh, entitle him to to be canonized. So the question is, does you know, did John Paul II practice heroic virtue, and can he be held up to the Catholic faithful as someone whom we should
0: imitate? Mm. And that, that's what uh, we'll get into that for sure with the the meat of the discussion. But I, I wonder, <laughs> Lord, if you could expand a little bit on. Traditionally, uh, what are the beyond the heroic virtue? Are there any other requirements, uh, or is there a process involved before someone can be be uh, named as a saint?
2: Uh, Yes, before Urban VIII, which is about the 1630s, uh, local bishops were able to go through a process of canonization. Uh, but those saints were able to be venerated only in within the limits of the diocese. So a lot of the canonizations that took place, you know, in the early Middle Ages and some of the local saints were done in that way. But Urban VIII said it all has to be done by Rome, and only the Pope can canonize saints. And uh, then, a gradually, a whole process was set up by the Sacred Congregation of Rites, very strict whereby they would look into the life of the saint, uh, check his, his uh, background, check everything about him. They even had the devil's advocate uh, who would look for dirt on the saint and, and and actually seek it out, seek out things that were bad and, and bad stories uh, in order to test them. The, the saint was, in a way, put on trial uh, to see if there was uh, anything in his life that was seriously wrong now only our our blessed lady was exempt completely from sin uh among the saints and so we're not saying that that you have to be absolutely free of sin uh they certainly committed venial sins as everyone does uh but they are definitely and must be free from mortal sin, any kind of uh, uh, you know practice of mortal sin, uh, at least after their conversion. Now, St. Augustine did plenty of mortal sinning before his conversion, but after his conversion, then you must find an innocent life and a life of heroic virtue. And that could take place either by martyrdom or by teaching the faith, the doctors, for example, uh, their zeal in, pro- in protecting the faith, or... <clears throat> uh helping the poor like saint vincent de paul there's all sorts of ways in which this heroic virtue can can be manifested
3: uh
2: but if you read the life of any saint you see this um, anytime i read the life of a saint uh, my hair falls well whatever's left of it falls out thinking oh my goodness uh, you know i just feel like a, a rat uh when when you read about their prayer life and and the the, the zeal that they have you know you can see mm-hmm. the the power of the spirit of god in them and moving them to to do things that are that are extraordinary
1: now it's not now uh, <coughs> simply no, a, a go ahead question. father yeah in uh these investigations and in these processes it um was uh not uh, simply um Uh, simply, uh, a a question of the profound piety uh, of their lives, uh, which they had to have. Uh, They they had to give us this this, uh, example, but also the orthodoxy of of their beliefs and their teachings. So in a a canonization process, all of the writings uh, of whatever description, all the correspondence, uh, sermons, etc., of uh, a saint would be uh, sought out by the uh, bishop of the diocese in which they lived, wherever they resided. Uh, People were solicited to give their correspondence in. And all of this was uh, examined by the Holy See. And the uh, very careful examination was uh, made to verify that everything not only was in, in conformity with Catholic piety, but also with Catholic doctrine as well. You, you had to be an uh, orthodox Catholic uh, to become a saint.
0: Yes. Now, uh, Father, you, you had actually anticipated my question, but as a follow-up question, I've seen some people will point to the fact that supposedly St. Thomas Aquinas didn't hold the, uh, the Immaculate Conception, and therefore this is some proof that it's possible to be a saint even if one isn't 100% orthodox. What would you say to that?
1: Well, uh, at that point, as everyone uh, knows, it was not uh, a dogma that was actually defined. It was something.
3: Uh,
1: St. Bernard also rejected it, and St. Bonaventure
2: rejected it. Mm -hmm. And the reason why they rejected it is that the explanation given was unorthodox the common explanation given for it was unorthodox, and that is that Our Lady was exempt from the general rule of being subject to original sin. That was what was being proposed, and they all said, oh, that's impossible because of the text of St. Paul, all men have sinned in Adam. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's why it it was rejected. But at that time, there was not a defined dogma, That's the very reason why Pius IX defined it, because there had been some controversy about it in the history of the Church. That's one of the occasions of definition, solemn
0: definition. Now, when a pope uh, uh, approves someone as a a saint and approves them for uh, universal uh, veneration as a saint, is that an infallible act? And if so, what makes it so?
1: Well, it's uh, considered part of the uh, secondary infallibility of the Church. It's a secondary object of infallibility. In other words, it's um, uh, it is the the idea that a saint is in heaven. That truth is uh, somehow necessarily connected to the truths of revelation. <laughs> and a uh, part of that is. Uh, that the church has to be a reliable guide to us for uh, the way to heaven. Uh, And if she said that someone was in heaven uh, and was a model for sanctity, but the person was uh, really in hell, or uh, if the church erred about some fact necessarily connected with the dogma and so on, uh, she would not be a a reliable guide for uh, helping us get to heaven so these are considered these pronouncements are considered uh to be infallible and that's the the common teaching of uh pre-vatican II theology uh, yes, precisely so, the, so we we don't get a we're not guided in the bad direction to follow someone who is actually in hell or someone who is depraved or did not truly profess the catholic faith yes it's all part of the church's worship uh, these people are held up
2: not merely as heroes, but they're held up as persons who will intercede to God for us, and therefore uh, it is therefore part of the worship of the Catholic Church. They're in the they're in the missal. We we celebrate the saints' feast days. They we call for their intercession. So it all falls under the general umbrella, let's say, of the infallibility of the church in prescribing general and universal laws concerning worship that that is that the church cannot err in prescribing universally uh, liturgical rites or any other form of worship uh, that is promulgated through the whole church Uh, otherwise uh, the the church shouldn't exist If, if the church could lead you to hell or hold up to you a somebody who is who is a great sinner uh as an intercessor with God well then the church loses its whole purpose as the leader of
0: souls to heaven so what is it that m- makes it infallible is it the fact that the pope and thereby the church is uh, declaring this and uh, or is the Process or the traditional process part of what makes it infallible? Because I, I've seen a lot of people seem to think that it's the fact that there was the devil's advocate that uh, your lordship mentioned and those things that make it infallible, the investigation.
1: No, those are simply part of the process, uh, part of the, the legal process, the trial process that gets to the uh, final effect. And none of the authors that um, uh, i 've read about this issue uh speak about that as an objection to uh the uh, to a canonization it 's considered infallible by the time it gets there because it's uh an act of uh, an act of the church and sometimes the uh the decrees themselves uh, use the term infallibility uh, similar language and that makes it very clear that these canonizations are to be considered infallible. But the, the very English
2: word canon means law in Greek. So the very word indicates something binding on all Catholics. And whenever the church binds, it's infallible.
0: Yes. So when uh, certain individuals, and I, I think uh, specifically uh the uh, Society of Saint Pius X and via Father Peter Scott has made the claim that because they've done away with the devil's advocate, therefore we don't need to worry. These so-called canonizations are don't aren't part of the infallibility, uh, aren't infallible, and therefore doesn't cause us any concern in terms of the indefectibility of the Church.
2: No, that's a lot of nonsense. Uh, the um the by prudence the Pope is required to uh, study for example if he's going to define something by prudence he's required to dis- to study the subject also by prudence he's required to go through various processes but these processes are determined by the Pope himself so and they didn't exist before you know in a, in a universal way before urban the eighth. That all of that was refined after Urban VIII and, and Benedict XIV. Uh, and the uh, so to say, well, there's, there's no devil's advocate, ergo, it's not infallible, it's just pure nonsense. It all boils down to the power of the Pope to determine the worship of the Catholic Church. Hmm. And, and it's only, uh, that, that is the assistance to the Church by Christ. If you don't believe that, you don't believe in the Catholic Church. So even if a pope were to define a dogma Without having studied it It still would remain an infallible Dogma and solemn teaching So also even if he were to Canonize someone Without a due process According to the Urban VIII rules Or the Benedict the Fourteenth rules It would still be a valid canonization There's no doubt about it
0: So if we... Uh go one step further. I think you've, you've touched on this, but just to make it uh, crystal clear for our listeners, uh, for to bri- provide them the proper context when we start discussing the case in particular of John Paul II, if one were to assume that uh, Francis, the most recent papal claimant after Vatican II, if he's a legitimate pope and he... Um, uh, canonizes John Paul II. The only responses are either a, that's a, a man of heroic virtue that we are to emulate, and that's the Catholic faith. You know, the Catholic faith is embodied in his life. Or b, the uh, the church is defected, which is impossible, and therefore one would have to say he can't be a, a legitimate uh, pontiff. Is, is that? Am I right in that? Absolutely what?
1: correct. Yes. Yes, and even according to the rules of the post-Vatican II Church, you have to accept these canonizations. The uh, CDF, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, which was formerly called the Holy Office, uh, said under Ratzinger in 1998 that uh, you have, have to accept canonizations Uh, the canonizations of saints, these things have to be held definitively, uh, even though they're not declared as divinely revealed. So even under the uh, new rules, uh, you would have to accept the uh, canonizations. You really don't have a choice of it. Otherwise, it would be chaos in the Catholic Church. You know, if if you say, "Well, I don't I don't
2: accept that saint, but I accept
1: this one," then, then you
2: have a, a Protestant situation, and a, it, it would just be absolutely chaotic. That well, I'm not going to mass today because it's a it's offered to you know in honor of a saint that I don't recognize. Um, the uh, it, it would just be absurd. But I think SS the Society of St. Pius X would probably say those are one of the that, that decree of the C D F is one of the many things we can just ignore, uh, because it doesn't it's not in accordance with what we think and, and tradition as we see it. Um right. and there's something else that should be brought out here, uh and that is that these canonizations are of course a joke because everyone knows that neither of these people, John the twenty third uh, nor uh, John Paul II, uh, uh, is a saint. And uh, this is an attempt to canonize Vatican II. Uh, it is atten- an attempt to canonize all of the defection from the faith that has gone on in the past 50 years and which has destroyed the uh, practically every institution in the whole Catholic Church has burned each institution down to the ground. And this is an absurd attempt to say that all of this is of God and that this is the work of saints. That that should be said. Uh, I mean, this is just a a pure ludicrous absurdity.
0: And uh, well, my Lord, we're we're going to launch into that in just a minute. uh, The specifics of why what uh, Your Lordship says is true. But I, I just want to, before we go, that mention that I. I know, uh, Father Chacato, you've written a number of uh, articles, and uh, if you could just give our listeners perhaps the, the names and where they can find some articles for if they want to read further on the what we've been discussing so far, uh, and then we can post that up on Twitter the the links.
1: Well, there's um, one general portal site, and that's sggresources.org. sggresources.org and that has links to a number of other sites uh one of which is um traditionalmass.org and traditionalmass.org has uh, uh, i think over 100 articles on it uh which <coughs> excuse me address uh a number of the topics that we'll be discussing tonight and then there's also a um uh, a uh, blog quidlive that has a number of shorter articles on these issues and that you can find at FatherChicada.com. All Right.
0: all right thank you father for those of you who are just joining us you are listening to clerical conversations on the crisis on the restoration radio network today our topic is canonizations, saints and john paul the second and we're just closing in on the top of the hour uh, ha- half an hour into our show So I'm going to open up the phone lines uh, to calls, and you can call us at 949-272-9417, or you can leave a question on Twitter, at True Restoration, if you have any questions for our guests. Uh, That said, uh, my lord, um, some of our listeners may be a bit scandalized by your uh, commentary about John Paul II not being a saint and not being a great man. And even many who consider themselves, uh, quote, conservative, unquote, think that John Paul II was a great Pope. So, I I think um, we have the task on this show of uh, talking about some of the not great things that he did and said. And, uh, perhaps uh, ju- justify uh, the uh, the comment that that was made about these canonizations quite frankly being a joke so uh, it's a very large topic about where do we begin with that
1: well the first thing I, that you have to remember is people who are younger um, really were not uh exposed as uh, adults to look local- closely at the whole reign of John Paul II uh, to see sort of from beginning to end exactly what he did. And now, after the resignation of Benedict XVI, uh, there's a tendency to blur things and, and uh, to look back and uh, to have uh, this this uh, false idea that somehow uh, John Paul II was indeed with the media uh, Painted him to be—that is to say, a, a big conservative, a traditionalist, a defender of the Catholic faith, and so on—and that uh, the uh, that you know he was a real hardliner as far as being a uh, defender of the Catholic faith. And that, however, if you look at his whole record, is uh, unrealistic and is actually a completely false impression, as we will discuss a little bit here tonight. So I ask uh listeners to keep uh the uh, younger listeners at least to keep an open mind about that.
0: And Lord, I think you had a when we were talking the pre-show, you had a um very uh uh apt comparison to the French Revolution, I think. I, I wonder if you could share that with listeners and explain uh what, how you come to that?
2: Yes, uh it's certainly, Vatican II is a revolution in the Catholic Church. It is a it is, uh, 1789. That is a French Revolution. Uh, it's very analog- analogical to it. And in the French Revolution, you had a coterie of radicals. Uh, principal among them, Robespierre, who, who was ruthless and, and would guillotine everybody that got in his way, and and uh, uh, be, became a fanatic about the revolutionary principles. But it, the revolution stumbled. Uh, the French Revolution stumbled because it lacked organization. All it had was a collection of fanatics, and there was a lot of infighting. But it took a Napoleon, someone who was powerful and, and organized, to establish the revolution throughout all Europe. And in that short period of his reign, he reorganized Europe entirely according to revolutionary principles and through his army, spread all of the ideas of revolutionary France throughout Europe, so that Europe was transformed by the, by 1814 because of the activity of Napoleon. And I think there is a strong analogy here between uh, Paul VI and John Paul II, Paul VI being the, the uh, Robespierre of the Church's revolution, the... The, the mentor, the, the mind of it, and and uh, someone who was uh, fanatical about getting it done, uh, certainly. And John Paul II was the Napoleon of it. That is, in 1978, when Paul VI died, it was still possible to turn the Church around and to put order in the Church and to put an end to all of the changes. It was still possible... And as a matter of fact, Voitiwa, John Paul II, got elected by a coalition of progressivists, modernists, who were afraid that Siri would pass. Siri was supposed to pass the following day, and, they, and there were two modernist opponents, and they went around uh, the, the night before and gained votes for Voitiwa as the modernist, who would beat Siri. Uh now Siri I don't think was any saint or anything but I do think that he would have done a great deal to to turn back the clock on Vatican II and and to restore order. Uh and uh, uh that was the 1978 conclave. Uh so he he emerged as the liberal's liberal uh and the the modernist uh from there and therefore he because of his charisma uh, his showbiz charisma he managed to establish the the revolution in his 25 or so year reign or attempt at a reign uh, uh, and therefore we emerged in 2005 with a completely transformed uh, religion uh, something that was unrecognizable if we look back to 1958
1: so I, I think that analogy applies and I, it, it um, uh, applies to my way of thinking uh <clears throat> because of uh, uh, two other reasons first of all uh, it was jp2 who institutionalized the revolution with the 1983 code of canon law yes which uh put together all of the uh different principles of uh invent- legal principles of of Vatican II, put them all together in one place, in one book. So the Church's law was reorganized. And secondly, also on the the doctrinal level, uh, the so-called Catechism of the Catholic Church. That was another institutionalization of the uh, Revolution, containing the uh, doctrines of uh, the Second Vatican Council. Uh, in, uh, especially in the section, <coughs> sections dealing dealing with the church, so he uh, institutionalized really the the discipline and the faith of the uh, revolution of Vatican II. And like Napoleon, he was a charismatic man, uh, and he created the the superstar papacy, the uh, yes. JP two superstar. And now and uh, that's the paradigm. That's what's Expected now to anyone who is is uh, elected, he has to be uh, uh, mediagenic. yeah So on 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 all those points, uh, I think the analogy holds.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, for true. Yeah. Uh, so perhaps uh, to move into the specifics, I I think perhaps we go thematically uh, with different areas. Uh, uh or themes that were went through his attempt at a papacy uh we can get um, we can pinpoint more specifically uh, the things that would either make him or make him not a, a model of heroic virtue for a catholic seminate emulate rather uh, and perhaps we should start with the ecumenism because i think that was a huge part of his reign and perhaps uh Bishop Sanborn, could you start us with a, a, a kind of a quick uh, synopsis or definition of what ecumenism is and is it good or is it bad?
2: Well, I usually pronounce it ecumenism but uh uh the it is the system of thought which uh is based on modernism uh which holds that all religions have value in the order of eternal salvation, and that the Roman Catholic Church is not the single source of salvation in the world, but that other religions are used by the Spirit of God, as Vatican II says, as means of salvation, and therefore deserve respect. And also that there should be an amalgamation uh, of all religions into one great religion, uh, unified diversity, as they call it, or, or diverse unity, or it was where there's a you know a, a sort of a, a union of all religions, if not a complete amalgamation, uh, because of this uh, respect one for another, uh, because each religion is in a certain way a, a manifestation of the religious experience that is going on inside of every man. Now, you have to go back a little bit to the modernist theology, what they call uh, theological anthropology. And that means this, that it's just modernism. It's it's a fancy word for the same old nonsense. It is that every man has an opening to God, and God reveals himself in a supernatural way to every man. And therefore, every man, in his own way, has a religious experience. And that this religious experience is a sacred thing, because it's from God. And religion becomes, what, whatever it is, it could be the worship of snakes, it is the the manifestation of this interior uh, experience that, that people have of God. That is the modernist principle, and it necessarily begets ecumenism, because therefore no one religion... Is, is the uh, proprietor of the religious experience. Uh, it admits only a good, better, best uh, in those religious experiences and in the, the religions that emanate from them. So the, the modernists would say, well, the Catholic religion is the best of all of them, but that doesn't mean that the others are not good. So that's ecumenism. And it, is, it was the soul of Vatican II. It is Vatican II was called for the sake of ecumenism Ecumenism is something that goes back to the 18th century Immanuel Kant, the rationalist philosopher called for the amalgamation of all religions he said that will be the greatest day for all religions even someone in the 17th century called for this amalgamation of religions it's something that started in Protestantism because Protestantism found itself all cut up because they had no unity of faith, and so they they had to say, well, there's something in common that we have. And and so they uh, started to, to uh, you know, the word, World Council of Churches, they started to try to put themselves together and to be in communion one with another. Uh, it is the product of heresy and schism. It is not the product of the Catholic Church. And as Pius XI said, you know, if people want unity... Uh, uh, you know, one church and unity of faith they are invited to come to the Catholic Church they are invited to convert to Catholicism and there they will find unity of faith and unity of government and unity of worship <laughs> that, that there is no need for any ecumenical movement uh, so that's it, ecumenism and John Paul II was an ecumenical maniac that's the only term for him uh, he was uh, everything he did practically was Uh, for ecumenism, Um, and uh, so his whole uh, period in the Vatican uh, is is marked by these absolutely abominable, from the point of view of the first commandment, abominable acts of participation in false religion, uh, all of which are mortal sins objectively. Uh, very grave mortal sins. The, The sins that are directed against God are far greater than the sins directed against men. So the sin of heresy, for example, is far worse than the sin of murder. And ecumenism involves actually an apostasy because ecumenism gets into every dogma and makes every dogma a relative thing. You know, that we believe that there are three persons in God and the Muslims believe that there's only one person, well, you know, we both have value. They're both true in a certain way. That is a dogma killer. Because if you relativize dogma, you take away from it its principal quality, its defining quality, which is that it is exclusive of error and something that must be believed by all. So we're dealing with something that is lethal to the Catholic Church. And, and John Paul II was a maniac in the area of ecumenism. And we can talk about the various uh, concrete things that he did in this regard.
0: Yeah, and perhaps we could uh, delve, I I think now would be a good time to start right into some of those.
2: Uh, Sure, well, uh, how about uh, praising voodoo? Uh, He met with voodoo priests in Africa and and, uh, was full of praise for voodoo. Now, I don't know if you know anything about voodoo, but... I mean, it is essentially the worship of the devil, and it involves worship of snakes and all sorts of trances, uh, you know, under the and uh, people who are essentially witch doctors uh, in in cahoots with the devil. And he praised voodoo as uh, you know an opening to the sacred, and and, you know, with various other language like that. Uh, I mean, that you can't go any lower than that. I mean that is that is a, a religion that that is just indicative of the worst effects of original sin in man, and it, it is the product of the devil. And to to uh, say that you know to praise voodoo as something that has value is very very serious and, and a terrible uh, scandal and and a terrible violation of the first commandment of God uh i mean that's that's just one uh, the um he he called uh, the jews our elder brother, brethren in the faith now the jews reject christ as the true messiah the catholic church is the mystical body of christ and and worships christ the king how now faith must have an object must have dogma as its object how could they be called elder brethren in the faith when they reject the very center of our faith? Uh, the uh, he says that he said that Lutherans and schismatic bishops have a, uh, a pastoral and apostolic mission, uh, as if they have some commission from God to lead souls to heaven. You know, it's just a few of the things i mean, you could you could, <laughs> books have been written about it there's so many things in it, you know so many acts, all of these ecumenical acts assisi uh it goes on and on and on the the worshipping of a golden Buddha in the in the church of saint Clair in assisi the removal of the crucifix and uh, and this is permitted by John paul II, the removal of a crucifix. And a service whereby a golden Buddha placed on the altar above the tabernacle was was incensed by Buddhist priests.
0: That's now, a, uh, yeah, uh, my lord, uh, some listeners might not be sure what you're speaking about when you mention a I know that's something that I'd never heard of until I was well into uh, tradition. So, could you just expand quickly on? Uh, what that was and why, why the meeting there, even setting aside the Golden Buddha on the the altar, why that's problematic?
1: Well, this was the uh, uh, day of uh, world peace at Assisi, and I think it was in 1986. Probably the idea of having it at Assisi was that um, uh, St. Francis uh, is uh, regarded as uh, sort of an anodyne, as sort of a harmless saint, uh, you know, someone who you put in the garden. Uh, and animal lover. Yeah, an animal lover, and he's nice to birds. <laughs> uh, so uh, this apparently was thought to uh, appeal to people as a place to have uh, a meeting of uh, as many of the heads of different religions as you could get together. So you had uh, different types of Eastern Orthodox schismatics. You had uh, Protestants of, of uh, all descriptions and uh, all stripes. You had um, uh, uh, Buddhists, as Bishop Sanborn uh, mentioned. You had uh, Hindus. You had minority, uh, the, these extremely small Nativist type of uh, religions, and they all came together for this uh, day of of uh, world peace. You, in, you forgot uh, to mention one. That was the American Indians
2: who worshipped the Great Thumb. Oh, that was it. Yes, <laughs> the Great Thumb. <laughs> you have to make sure that they get special mention. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's right.
1: So it was um, uh, it, the uh, and this was the this this giant ecumenical. Uh, gathering that basically put everyone on the same level. You can see these, these pictures of uh, the representatives of these different uh, religions standing there with uh, uh, JP2 in a line holding uh, uh, different things. I, I think all of a, branches. Is, it was a similar. potted plant. A, a, yeah,
3: a potted, yeah, plant. P- potted oh. plant. Yeah,
1: they're, they're all holding a
2: potted plant. I don't know what the plant is. We could maybe speculate, but the, the there was a potted plant involved.
3: Okay. <laughs> yeah.
1: Maybe it was the tobacco plant from the India. <laughs> but the, the idea, the image of that, uh, that communicates something to you when you see those people lined up. And what it communicates to you is uh, one religion is as good as another. And why don't we all just uh, get along and be nice to one another? That the differences in dogma really don't matter as long as we are kind of nice to one another. It's not important what you believe. And the whole Assisi, uh, Assisi production uh, conveyed that in in uh, in action. Mm-hmm. A very, very vivid way of conveying that idea of ecumenism. Yes, and there was a second Assisi
2: in the 90s where they actually had in the courtyard uh, of of the Basilica the worship of fire. Now, that is very significant because that was the original idolatry in the Old Testament in the city of Ur. It's the first recorded idolatry. uh, And it was from that that Abraham was called, in other words, away from the uh, worship of fire into the true religion. So they they actually had the worship of fire. The Zoroastrians uh, were worshiping fire. I think that was at the second one under John Paul II. I think it was in 1993. I don't think that occurred at the first one. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: But it's the same idea, that all religions have value and that they are all a path to salvation. And this is what John Paul II explicitly said in Catechesi Tradende uh in 1980 he said it is extremely important that the uh, non-catholic religions be uh, taught to you know to children uh, as being means of salvation so he said it's extremely important uh so uh this uh, you know, what characterizes him most is ecumenism wherever he went he participated in some ecumenical activity uh, he was blessed by uh, uh, an American Indian uh, chief or medicine man with a feather. Uh, he was drinking uh, potions in Polynesia. Uh, you know, that
1: had a religious, uh, you know, aspect to it. Um, the uh, he got the cow dung mark of Shiva, I think, in in India. Yeah. Uh, when uh, during a mass in India, and he. Um, uh, also, of course, kissed the Koran in, in uh, one of his, his visits to the Middle East. So there's there's just about no religion that he didn't get uh, involved in in one way or another. Yes, yes, uh,
2: he practically he covered everything on the globe. Uh, I mean, at least generically, uh, the Spiritism, the schismatics, the Greek and, and Eastern schismatics, the the Protestants uh everybody
1: was touched in some way by him uh, in those the, trips there was one funny incident i remember uh, reading about it was uh, some uh ecumenical gathering uh that included uh an orthodox uh, some sort of orthodox patriarch and uh, he, he said very clearly he was happy to come to the meeting, but he couldn't possibly pray with JP2 because it was forbidden by their canon law. Yeah, that was in uh, Ukraine.
2: Was, yes. Uh, he c- could not even say an Our Father with him, according to their law.
0: So, the, because, in that regard, the Orthodox law would be more Catholic than the practices of the post Vatican II. Papal I
2: wouldn't say that that just consistency if you're saying this mm-hmm. the Christ is the true God, and the religion that he founded is therefore the true religion, well, then other religions are false i mean you hardly need a brain to figure that out and and therefore participation in false worship falls under all of the uh the condemnations of God. I mean in the Old Testament, God was very severe to the Jews when when they participated in false worship uh it, it when they uh, like when uh, they partook in the the various rites of the neighboring neighboring peoples uh when they sacrificed babies to moloch uh, god was extremely severe with that because it is the the first the first way in which we are attached to god is by faith that that is the first chain that we have to God. So even if we should fall into terrible sin, if we still retain the faith, we are still in a way attached to him, supernaturally, because of, of supernatural faith. If you, if you break that chain by apostasy or heresy, if you go after a false god or a false religion, you totally cut yourself off from God. And that's why it's so serious. Uh, the uh, it also humanism also makes the whole idea of external revelation absurd. The external revelation given to the Jews uh, in the Old Testament in preparation for the Messiah, all of that was for no reason. Why did he pick a special people? Why did he give them prophets, and and why did he set up the all of the Mosaic Law and the and the the Levitical practices? why did he do that except to prepare a people with the true religion in order that they uh, receive the true messiahs when he came in the ecumenical system all of that becomes absurd uh it it, it is useless the jews would have been just uh, another people of the middle east who had their own religious experiences uh you know it it it, it is ruinous of catholicism and ruinous of religion in general uh... and uh... i believe piety eleven said it paves the way to atheism
0: now so, some would argue and some have argued that when john paul second did things like accepting the uh... mark of shiver on his head or kiss the crown, that these are just kind of empty external uh... acts and it doesn't uh... in doesn't impact on his interior piety or, or holiness and therefore it's not sufficient to cause the concern. Eh? Well, well uh, the idea so oh, uh,
2: Good. Go let me ask you this. Would they say the same thing, and would the world have said the same thing, if the members of the Nazi party brought to him Mein Kampf to kiss? <laughs> would they have said, well, you know, there's really nothing wrong with that? As, you know, we're having a picture of people in, in, you know, the SS uniform there and he's kissing Mein Kampf, would people absolve him of guilt, saying, well, you know, this is just some little external act? They would excoriate, they would have excoriated him as participating in one of the most evil movements of history. And yet the Koran is is actually more offensive to the Catholic faith than Mein Kampf is. I mean, it says that Christ did not truly die on the cross. It says that uh, that it is impossible that God have a son. I mean, I read these things myself. It, it is uh, offensive to the dignity of women. You know, so the the uh, there are uh, that that that's merely a way of excusing this man. Once it for certain people, once they put the white cassock on no matter what they do or say, it is excused. It is somehow cleansed and absolved. And it, it is it is m- merely an inability to see what is before them because they don't want to see it.
0: Hmm. Well, um, for those who are just joining us, and I know we've had uh, an- quite a number of uh, new listeners since we started the show... You're listening to Clerical Conversations on the Crisis on the Restoration Radio Network. And today our topic is uh, canonization, sainthood, and John Paul II. Uh, for those who joined the show partway in, uh, you could, you, once the show is over, you'll be able to download the podcast if you want to hear the beginning discussion. And we had some important discussion at the very beginning of the show about what is a canonization, what is a saint, and uh, church teaching on that. Uh you can uh, call us with questions at 949 272 9417 or leave a question on Twitter, and the handle for that is at True Restoration. So uh, moving forward, we've, uh, I think, uh, covered off well the uh, ecumenism of uh, John Paul II and uh, shown how that's not consistent with. Uh, catholicism let alone uh, heroic virtue in the, the catholic faith uh, so uh, another theme that i think we could talk about that touch comes from the ecumenism that is teachings on universal salvation it may come as a shock to some listeners to hear that john paul ii taught universal salvation but um uh, my impression is he did did he
2: uh, absolutely, he did. He he said that uh, in his first encyclical that by the uh, incarnation, uh, uh, Christ uh, attached himself to every man and that uh, every man, therefore, there's uh, not a single man that shall be snatched from him, quoting sacred scripture, uh, where sacred scripture actually means Uh, refers to those who are elect. That was his uh, prayer in the 17th chapter of St. John. Uh, Here he says in Redemptor Hominess, uh, Human nature, by the very fact that it was assumed, not absorbed in him, meaning Christ, has been raised in us to a dignity beyond compare, for by his incarnation he, the Son of God, has in a certain way united himself with each man. Now, that's not true, because the union that we have with Christ is a supernatural union. It is not a natural union. The the mere fact that Christ shared our human nature does not attach us to him. And then he goes on to say, We are dealing with each man, for each one is included in the mystery of the redemption, and with each one Christ has united himself forever through this mystery. That's a quote from John Paul II. So that means for all time we are united to Christ. That is heretical, because the, those who go to hell are obviously detached from Christ. So he is implicitly denying hell, and he is declaring universal salvation. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, you know, he was very clear about it. Um <clears throat> so it's a heresy to, you know and also he he later years later he said uh there is a hell but uh, i i don't believe that there's anybody in it Some, something like that he effectively denied hell um, um so uh th- that is um that is definitely a theme of his uh, so-called pontificate is that uh, every man is going to heaven and certainly that is the common belief among what we call novosorto catholics uh the, you go to a novosorto funeral and for the mere fact that someone was nice or naturally good uh they are declared to be in heaven uh for the mere fact that you know their relatives get up and tell funny stories about them you know how they put their their foot in the paint can as they were coming down the steps of the ladder, and everybody laughs, and and uh, you know Uncle George was just a great guy, and you know everybody thinks that he was, and for that reason he's going to heaven because he was a great guy, and and he was nice to his dog or something. Uh, that is the Novus Ordo. Uh, we're all going to heaven. We come in with a white sheet on ourselves, perhaps balloons. And and uh, you know it's it's just the canonization process that goes on, uh, and uh, I mean the idea of releasing a soul from purgatory, are you kidding? And the thought that somebody might go to hell would, would just be, it's just uh, you couldn't even think about it. <laughs> and uh, you know these are just. Uh, and and in many cases uh, these funerals are held for people who live absolutely filthy lives and scandalous lives like for example Versace uh was was buried from the cathedral of Milan Duh. and that was cardinal martini of course who permitted that who was a heretic but the the uh, i mean people who are absolutely uh you know abominable in any in everyone's view practically Uh, are given funerals and and are given this treatment as if they're going to happen. So he definitely uh, inculcated that idea. Uh, Here's another quote. Uh, This is from Dives and Misericordia, one of his early encyclicals. Christ obtained once and for all the salvation of man, dash, of each man and of all men, of those whom no one shall snatch from his hand. Now that's a quote from that priestly prayer of Christ in the 17th chapter of St. John where he refers to the elect. No, uh, who can change the fact that we are redeemed, a fact that is as powerful as, and as fundamental as creation itself? We became again the property of the Father, thanks to that love who does not recoil from the ignominy of the cross to be able to guarantee to all men, no one shall snatch you out of my hand. Referring to John chapter 10 verse 28, uh, the the Church announces today the Paschal certitude of the resurrection, the certitude of salvation. Now that's explicit. You know, no one can deny that he is a universal salvationist from that. So that's a heresy to say that everybody's going to heaven, and that you have certitude of salvation. That, that is a heresy condemned by the Council of Trent. So he's a public heretic.
0: Well, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I don't know if we want to go down this road, this road, maybe. But just briefly, because I can hear people, even though they haven't called in with this, I can hear people thinking, "Oh, but he, he's not a heretic because uh, the, he it hasn't been formally condemned by the church, or it hasn't had a trial and been formally condemned."
2: Well, you could, uh, I would uh, use this analogy, if you knew that your next-door neighbor were a child abuser, but had not yet been arrested by the police or denounced to the police and had not been condemned by a court of law, would you say, well, I will let my children go over and play because before the law he's innocent? Hmm. I mean, there are facts, there are real facts and there are legal facts. A le- the legal fact follows the real fact. Somebody must do a crime before he's convicted of it. And so, therefore, there is always a gap between those two things. To say that he's not been convicted in front of a court of law doesn't mean that we deny the real fact of what he has done. As a matter of fact, and I don't want to <laughs> hit that word too much, in order to that a court of law uh, accuse and condemn someone, They must know the real facts. (laughs) They must be convinced of the real fact in order to make that a legal fact. See, so that's not a way out to say, well, I can't judge him, uh, any more than it's a way out to, to, uh, you know, where you witness a murder and you say, well, I didn't see the murder, or I can't say that that man is a murderer. You might be called in as a witness to say that that man is a murderer, See, so the, there are real facts that are able to be seen, and and these things are in print, and, and also he confirmed all of these real facts by his activity, and also by his opposition to any kind of tradition, his excommunication of Archbishop Lefebvre, his thwarting of all uh, of the movement uh, to... Even make a a side chapel of tradition in the in the traditional move in the uh, in the church. The only reason why he finally conceded that in 1988 was because Archbishop Lefebvre made such a splash with his resistance that he was forced to do it. He had no use for the traditional mass, uh, John Paul II. He he couldn't stand pre-Vatican II. For him, it was like the Old Testament, so to speak. You know, it was just another world of church that he had already detached himself from, and and uh, he he had uh, no inclination toward it at all. The only reason why those concessions were made in 1988 was because Archbishop Lefebvre essentially beat down the doors uh, by by his insistence and all of his travel and and speech-making and his activity in, in forming priests and, and finally consecrating bishops. Uh, I mean, that's the true John Paul II that you're looking at. and And I would add, why is this man considered a saint? What did he do? And I think the answer is that he was a movie star. That he is considered, you know, a great man because he was—he presented himself like a movie star. He, he's a pop star. Uh, you know, the the people that are proclaiming him a saint and are saying Santo Subito, Santo Subito, you make him a saint right away. They are, are 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 what they see in him. The virtue they see in him is is a that of a pop star, not any supernatural virtue. And by the way, uh, I heard on uh, good source that that outburst of Santo Subito at his at his funeral was organized by the Vatican.
0: Uh, I've read uh, articles to that effect as well, Lord. Yes. Um, and perhaps, having covered off uh, ecumenism and universal salvation, uh, another good topic to look at would be John Paul II and Religious liberty and what role he played, if any, in um, perhaps the uh, outside the church itself, but in the world in terms of contributing to the dismantling of uh, confession confessional states and uh, the uh, church's teaching in the uh, the political sphere, if you will.
2: Uh, Yes, he was another uh, very, very strong proponent of Vatican II's doctrine on religious liberty. And he even made a statement that it was uh, particularly binding, that the um, Declaration was particularly binding, uh, which I think is important because the Society of St. Pius X always tries to uh, wriggle uh, out of the problem by saying, Well, you know Vatican II is not infallible and and for him to take that doctrine and explicitly say that it is it is it is particularly binding is uh, he that that is the condition of of infallible teaching that if the Pope says that something is binding uh, that that's that 's the condition as I said before the canonization is binding uh that means we are all uh bound uh, under law to accept it and that cannot be false otherwise the church leads people into falsehood that 's what you would have to uh conclude and uh so he was uh, uh always uh, in all of his documents over and over again uh, you know uh, calling for religious liberty in a completely unorthodox sense that each man has the right to uh follow his, his you know his conscience and to uh profess whatever religion he believes uh so uh you know that that's another um uh, erroneous and even heretical doctrine that he taught. Um uh, uh that that uh, you know is is, uh, is certainly not in accordance with holiness. Um <clears throat> it was condemned by Pope Pius IX Ninth and by various other Roman pontiffs. Uh so um uh he says here uh the Catholic Church this is a quote from John Paul II uh, he's writing to the those who uh, did the Helsinki Pact. Uh, the, the, uh, the, that was a pact uh, uh, guaranteeing religious liberty uh, that was done in the 1980s or 90s, I believe. He says the Catholic Church has synthesized the fruit of her reflection on this subject in the Declaration Dignitatis Humanae of the Second Ecumenical Council of the Vatican, uh, a promulgated on December 7th 1965 a document which for the holy see has a particular binding force unquote so you know it is we can't therefore say that you know this is something we can take or leave here you know if we're regarding this man as the vicar of christ on earth he says it has a particular binding force for the holy see uh you you have a very very serious problem there because
0: it contradicts catholic doctrine but so uh, he didn't teach a very very limited religious liberty oh gosh no
2: no he he's, he's i mean you would have to again uh it would take the the rest of the show to to repeat all of the instances of of his declarations concerning religious liberty but it, it was constant He actually made a whole document on it. There was actually a fairly short, which was unusual for him, fairly short document on religious liberty, uh, declaring religious liberty in a very unorthodox way. I mean, the Catholic Church's notion of religious liberty is this, that you have the right to profess the one true faith, which is the Catholic faith. That's religious liberty for the Catholic Church, and that the Catholic Church, therefore, has the right to go in and preach and to establish itself and that all men have the right to profess it. That has always been the sense of religious liberty for the Catholic Church. In no time did the Catholic Church say that all men had the right to profess whatever religion they wanted, and that uh, that they had to, the right to to establish seminaries and schools and to propagate themselves. All these religious sects, as Vatican II states, uh, Vatican II is very explicit about that. That that this is a, a right. To, to propagate your own false religion—that uh, that is something that is guaranteed by revelation. I mean, you, you couldn't fulfill the the requirements of heresy uh, more perfectly than that, because when you cite revelation, then you're in the area of of obviously revelation, and then you're in the area of heresy, because you're opposing what is revealed by God you know you can't say well it's just an error or you know they're misled or or they didn't really mean it or or you know it's a theological opinion or something you are if you cite revelation you are in the area of heresy in other words you're either in the area of dogma or heresy and,
0: and uh, case, for any listeners oh sorry for no, uh, mm-hmm. for any listeners who are interested on getting a bit more detail about Vatican II specifically I just uh, reminded that uh, we did a show on Restoration Radio uh, last year with Bishop Sanborn going into more detail on the specifics of Vatican II, um, so th- that may be something for listeners to listen to. Uh, at this point, I, I just want to take a little bit of a pause from the the themes of John Paul II's uh, attempt at a pontificate and uh, Father Chacata, I have a question for you. Thinking back to show what we did with uh, with you uh, the, uh, about the Society of Saint Pius the Tenth that we've uh, mentioned before, and the um, failure of the the fat lady to sing in the the long drawn out opera of their involvement with uh, with the, the post Vatican II hierarchy.
4: I, I think it, she went to is bed this, by
0: now. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, it, is the the impending quote canonization unquote of John Paul II it, is this perhaps going to be finally the, the fat lady moment where uh, the Society of Saint Pius X uh, walks away from this constant back and forth, uh, or will they finally say you know the nine were right? <laughs> Well, I doubt that.
1: Uh, it'll be a long time before the fat lady ever sings that aria.
3: <laughs>
1: the uh, I my suspicion is that uh, uh, the uh, Pius X Society will uh, reject the canonization somehow on procedural grounds by uh, saying that uh, there wasn't a sufficient uh, um, investigation that uh the devil's advocate wasn't uh present uh, there will be some sort of a, a or the procedural... date stamp was wrong either yeah, the date stamp was wrong there will be some there will be some technicality uh that they w- will try to use to uh, evade it uh, they faced this problem before with the head of uh, opus dei whom they did not like at all whom they saw as, as someone who uh you know uh, embodied uh the spirit of Vatican II. so they uh tried to find you know procedural grounds out of it but in terms of the theology of it you really can't because uh if he's the pope it's infallible if you regard him as the pope and you you uh cannot second guess the church on something like this but uh, as to whether or not they will ever be logical about it, um, uh, you know, I do not see that happening with uh, the case of John Paul II. They've let so many things go by so far that uh, there would be no r- real reason, I think, for them to change their course here.
0: Mm-hmm. So, so is the, the, the target just going to continually shift? further and further as to what would be the point where we'd have to finally say this is too crazy these post Vacant II claimants can't possibly be true popes?
2: The Society of St. Pius X will never say that they, they have crystallized a system for themselves whereby they can recognize these outlandish people as popes and at the same time completely ignore them as if they don't exist and this is pleasing to them, it's pleasing to their priests and pleasing to their people. They are very comfortable in that. So they say we're subject to the Pope and we're with the Pope, unlike the the evil Satovacentists, uh and uh but at the same time we pay no attention to him. And very oddly that that has a, a you know, a, a big appeal. Uh and they will never move away from that. I think they they really don't want to hook up with the modernists in Rome because they might have to actually obey somebody.
1: That's my opinion about it. Yes, the um, other phenomenon I think that is uh, interesting to see is that while the Pius X Society has these uh, odd conceptions about uh, ecclesiology and submission to the Pope, that uh, I get the impression that in the mainstream the Novus Ordo Church, if you want to use that expression, those who are uh, conservative and look more closely at these different issues, who believe that the Pope has, uh, you know, the authority to, to declare canonization uh, infallibly, are uh, upset by. The prospect that Bergoglio is going to canonize J.P. too, uh, because uh, they have a, a more consistent ecclesiology. They believe that well, if he's he's the pope, you have to listen to him, and he he does have have this sort of authority. And it's it's uh, awful hard for them to swallow. I think.
2: Mm-hmm, yes. Yeah. Um, no, they 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 do not have an admiration for that man. No, definitely no. not. But they do have at least a uh, a Catholic ecclesiology in the sense that they understand that if you say someone is the Pope, you have to obey him.
0: Well, uh, for anyone who's uh, just joining us or has recently joined us, you're listening to Clerical Conversations on the Crisis on the Restoration Radio Network. Uh, today our topic is uh, Saints, Canonizations, and John Paul II and we're joined by uh, Bishop Donald Sanborn and Father Anthony Chicada And uh, our la- phone lines are open. Uh, for anyone that has questions on uh, the topic that we're discussing, uh, the phone number is 949-272-9417. Uh, again, you can call us at 949 272 Nine four one seven, or leave a question on Twitter. Uh, our handle being at True Restoration.
2: Something else that uh, needs to be said about him is the the horrible appointments that he made as bishops. Uh, you know, everyone uh, I remember when he was around, of course, trying to absolve him of guilt, said it's the evil bishops that are at the root of the problem in the church. He made the worst appointments of bishops when he was supposedly pope. Uh, he made the Bernadine uh, in Chicago. He made uh, Mahoney, I believe, in, in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to mention, too, in Europe, he made some very, very left-wing appointments. Uh, that's very indicative of what is going on in his mind. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the people that surround you and the people that you choose to to carry out your will is very very indicative of of any human being. You know what what his attitudes are. Um, you know, conversely, Saint Pius X had around him you know, <laughs> people who were very saintly and and very uh, strict. Uh, and uh, but the appointments that he made uh, were were in many cases uh, scandalous, and they did a lot of damage. Uh, and I, I think that the the the, the decline of the Catholic Church uh is largely due to that uh, these these terrible appointments of bishops that he made and the, the the all of the the chaos of the 80s and the 90s uh was uh, due to him and and i would compare it to uh, the titanic it, it, you know the the captain of the titanic completely botched the whole voyage because he plowed through. You know, he went to bed, but he plowed through uh, the the uh, uh, the ice pack at 22 knots, which for a big ship it was pretty fast. And you know, he knew it was there. He did not tell his subordinates to avoid it, but they went through in some sort of speed mania to New York. Now, imagine if he had survived that, and he got back to Southampton in England. And he was considered a hero after he sent 1,500 people to their deaths in a watery grave and sent this magnificent ship that was worth millions and millions of dollars down to the bottom of the Atlantic. Now, what would have happened to him if he had made it back to Southampton? They would have arrested him as a scoundrel for having lost that ship but we have this person who has completely wrecked the catholic church in his 25 or so year reign uh in quotation marks totally wrecked it all of the life signs being down and now we're supposed to say he's a saint i mean this this is this is like psychosis this is this is dementia uh it's it's hallucination uh, he, he 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 destroyed it with a wrecking ball and now we're supposed to say he's a
1: saint <laughs> it's it's no. a no. one long chronicle <laughs> of decline from uh from the beginning with him uh, that the uh interest in uh, the faith and and uh, the practice and so on is lower and lower after uh 25 years of his appointment and with him as the apologist for Vatican II, with him at the uh, with him at the helm, and the idea of calling him John Paul the Great, which is another uh, thing that uh, people are trying to do, is is uh, absurd. He's the Great Destroyer.
5: hmm But well, most people while, do while that in under- an attempt uh-huh. to so go ahead. Uh, well,
0: I, I'm just noticing we're, we're getting a bit of a rash of calls here. So uh, perhaps, uh, Milord, if you could, uh, after you finish your thought, I'd, I'd like to uh, start uh, take a call.
2: No, just go ahead and take it. That's fine.
0: All right. Uh, well, our first caller is, uh, we have a gentleman named Steve from Idaho. And uh, he has a question about uh, uh, the difference between religious liberty and religious freedom, I think, uh, So, Steve, have I uh, correctly phrased your question?
5: Uh, Yes, uh, I I do understand it, but I just wanted to uh, mention that a lot of younger Catholics out there don't have any problem with religious liberty. They think, well, what's wrong with that? Because they confuse it with religious freedom as American citizens, and I thought the bishop and the father could perhaps explain the, the difference between the two. Well, I don't know of any difference between the two. Uh,
2: If you're talking about the separation of church and state in the United States and the fact that uh, in the United States no religion at all is recognized as a state religion, that state of affairs is condemned by the Roman Catholic Church.
5: So yeah you but, but the younger people who look at this might think that well everyone is is free under the law to practice whatever religion they wish, and the Catholic Church probably would not tell the American government to say no, we don 't want you to allow anybody to, to to follow their conscience it's a different it's not separation it's that the the church is certainly correct in its view, i mean against religious liberty, I mean the Roman Catholic Church, not uh-huh. the conciliar. But I think the younger people think, well, everybody should be free to follow their own conscience and religion. And they, they're confusing the religious aspect of it with the political aspect of it. And so they don't see that there's any problem with John Paul proclaiming religious liberty.
2: Well, well, those two things are united, though. See, Vatican II was talking about a civil right. It was not talking about a, uh, like a personal right as a civil right, so much as a civil right, right. if you read the text, there's, that, that uh, a properly ordered society is one in which there is this civil right of religious liberty. That is condemned by the Roman Catholic Church. And I think that the young people in such a case are victims of the culture in which we live, in which the 18th century rationalism uh, took over, and formed a culture in which uh, states ought to be completely secular and, and indifferent to religion, uh, whereby you can you know, do whatever you want and believe whatever you please, that is held up as a great right and as a, a great freedom, and in fact is condemned by the Roman Catholic Church. And we are seeing the effects of that false freedom, that false civil freedom, in now the approval of sodomy. Because there's no... What principle do you cite against sodomitic marriage? If you have no state religion, if there's no revelation, if there's nothing that you go by except pleasure and freedom, mm. then why not? You see, so we're seeing the effects of that very serious error. And But yes, I do b- believe that most, most Americans think that that's a wonderful idea. As a matter of fact, it was... Cardinal um uh, Spellman and his theologian John Courtney Murray who introduced the the uh notion of religious liberty to the uh Second Vatican Council because they thought that the American plan and the American way of life was just wonderful and that that was uh, true uh, the the Irish clergy became infected with that form of liberalism early on back in the 19th century because they wanted to show themselves as really good Americans, and so they neglected and poo-pooed the the church's condemnation of that system, and presented themselves as as being in completely in accordance with with separation of church and state and complete civil religious liberty. Uh, the uh, uh, notably Bishop Ireland of of St. Paul was uh, explicit in that. And uh, the uh, but the German clergy uh, were opposed to the Irish clergy at that time for that very reason that they felt that the Irish were too liberal. Uh, so I mean that that's that's I really there is really no difference between you know theological religious freedom and civil religious freedom. Uh, the the Catholic Church is, is the sole. Proprietor of religious freedom—that is, you have a right to be a Catholic, you have a right to profess the Catholic faith. Only the Catholic faith should be established as the state religion in in nations. And yes, I know that sounds like a, a sort of a fantastic idea in the world in which we live, but that is that is correct. If Christ is the right. King, He should reign through His Church. Okay. Thank you.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Th- thank you for thanks for the call, Steve. And okay. uh, listeners uh, listeners may uh, want to look up uh, True Restoration, Episode 25, which was with uh, Bishop Dolan. Uh, and they, that was about uh, America and uh, Catholicism. And a, a lot of those points that were brought up by Bishop uh, Sanborn are expanded upon in that, that show. We have another call. This one is from uh, James in uh, Minnesota. And he has a question... For uh, in relation to the Society of Saint Pius X and their comments on the uh, the new mass and new code, Uh, James, uh, go ahead with your question, please. Uh, Yes, you know the Society will often say, uh, Your Excellency, Father Chichada, that you know the Pope may approve something, he may publish it, but he, in his language, these recent popes, they have not explicitly said it binds the faithful. But my understanding of an ex-cathedral statement is it's not required that he necessarily say
2: that he it binds the faithful, only that he approves it using his full apostolic authority and it's something on faith and morals. But maybe I'm wrong. So I,
4: I was wondering what your thoughts were on that.
2: Uh, yes, first of all, the term ex cathedra is or ex uh, ex cathedra is a little ambiguous in that sense because all it means is that he's using his authority and he can use levels of authority that that is true too, you know, he can uh but there uh you have to distinguish a few things. One is doctrine. And in doctrine he can define solemnly or he may teach via the Universal Ordinary Magisterium, which is the normal way in which the Church teaches. Both the First Vatican Council and the Canon Law of 1917 say that both are infallible, that both uh, must be a- adhered to by the uh, sent of faith. And if if they require the assent of faith, it means they're infallible because the, the faith can only have an infallible doctrine as its object. You, you can't adhere by supernatural faith to something false or something doubtful. So in doctrine, uh, it is not required that he solemnly define. In fact, solemn definitions are quite rare. Uh, and uh, Pius XI said that the universal ordinary magisterium happens every day. Uh, the, so uh, so there's that, but then there's the realm of universal law. Now, universal law is infallible in this sense. It's not the same as doctrine, because it doesn't come from Revelation, but it's infallible in this sense that the Church cannot prescribe in a universal way for all the faithful something that is sinful or wrong, evil. Otherwise, it loses its very mission as the path to salvation. And that's where the Society of St. Pius X has a problem. They like to use the argument, well, he's telling us to do something wrong, and therefore we must disobey him. That would work if an individual pope told an individual person, I want you to do something evil, I want you to desecrate this crucifix. That argument would work. Because in such a case, he's acting in a private capacity. But when he is prescribing laws and canonizations for the whole church to observe, then he engages the infallibility and indefectibility of the Catholic Church, and that argument cannot be applied. That's a very important point. Because otherwise, you, you admit the possibility of the church's defection. And that's exactly where they are. I mean, they they criticize constantly the all of the enactments of these Vatican II popes. They are, are ex, up and down excoriating them. If you look at the comments of Archbishop Lefebvre and various others, uh, they they uh, they are ruthless in, in their comments. They are effectively saying that the church is in defection because these things are evil, we must reject them, we must ignore all of these things. If they are rejecting these universal laws and these liturgical laws and and so forth, why are they rejecting them except if they're sinful? And if they are evil and and, uh, a path to hell, otherwise you would not reject them. So they are involved in a very serious theological problem in that. And so I don't know if I've addressed your question, but you do have to make some distinction between doctrine and law. That that would be the first thing I would say. Okay, so, so if it was doctrine, a pope could could make it infallible if he were to say this, this is
4: the teaching for the universal church. He yes, wouldn't necessarily it, have to say it's...
2: It's binding on all the faithful in the document. Uh, Yes, it's always done by language. Uh, The solemn definitions uh, require I declare or we declare and define, uh, or something equivalent. Uh, But if he speaks about something revealed, something contained in Revelation, and he proposes it to the whole church, and all of the bishops or the majority of bishops teach the same thing, that is, they promulgate the doctrine in their dioceses, that qualifies as ordinary universal magisterium. That is infallible doctrine. It must receive the assent of faith according to
1: both Vatican I and the Code of Canon Law. A good example of that in the post-Vatican II Church would be the new catechism that uh, uh, John Paul II put out. That, uh, that would uh, be considered... Uh, to be something that's part of the universal ordinary magisterium. And he speaks in the uh, beginning, in the introductory documents, to the uh, issue of of the binding force of of this catechism. So uh, you would, if you accepted John Paul II uh, as the uh, vicar of Christ, you would be obliged to assent to uh, the teaching in the New Catechism. Uh, for instance, the, the modern ideas on the, the concept of the church, the ecumenical notion of the church, for instance. So that is that is uh, quite uh, that is an example of something that would be an official teaching uh, of the uh, post-Vatican II Church that would be considered universal ordinary magisterium. Yet they, yet the Pius the Tenth Society and others reject that.
2: An example in in Catholicism of ordinary universal magisterium is the guardian angels. There is no solemn document proclaiming guardian angels. There is, it's all just the common teaching of the Catholic Church that is, that is taught by the Pope and the bishops for, for all time. I mean, there was never a time when they didn't teach it. And uh, the... Um, uh, that, that's uh, a sign uh, of Universal Ordinary Magisterium. Now, the Society of St. Pius X makes another error concerning Universal Ordinary Magisterium, and it is this, that you don't have Universal Ordinary Magisterium unless there is a test of time. So if, if some dogma endures the test of time, then it becomes Universal Ordinary Magisterium. It's something like the dot-to-dot if, you're, you know, if you see some image emerging when you connect the dots over time, then, okay, you have a dogma from Universal Ordinary Magisterium. That is a false statement. It cannot be supported by any of the teaching of the Catholic Church or by any theologian. Uh, there is no test of time. The only test of Universal Ordinary Magisterium is that the Pope teach it and that the bishops teach it along with him. So the whole teaching church is teaching this doctrine, uh, and it must, of course, be contained in revelation, and it must be proposed for belief. So, for example, the pope could say something in an encyclical that he's not proposing for belief. Uh, he's not binding. He doesn't say you know he, he might be speculating, or he might uh, you know he might be proposing in such a way that it is not for belief. So that would, would not fall under Universal Ordinary Magisterium. But that they have formulated this error that uh, that really comes, sorry to say, from Hans Kung. Hans Kung says the infallibility of the Church means that, you know, in the end it will turn out right. But she can make a lot of mistakes along the way. And and that's, uh, that's uh, the way the Society of St. Pius X promotes universal ordinary magisterium so they say well you know this is all universal ordinary magisterium but the church can make a lot of mistakes along the way and we just can't connect any dots here with the past so therefore we can ignore
1: it one of the other features of, of that of trying to connect it as it were to the past and to make that a condition is they um, uh, take the uh, famous saying by uh, Vincent of uh, Lorraine about uh, that is Uh, talks about uh, a doctrine being uh, believed quod semper quod obique quod omnibus, something that was uh, uh, always uh, taught everywhere by everyone. And uh, they lay that down as a condition for universal, uh, ordinary magisterium. Uh, In other words, to say that you're not bound to uh, accept uh, some teaching unless it conforms to that uh, dictum. but actually, that's, that's a uh, that was a, a, a trick that some theologians tried in the, the uh, 19th century to say that well, you, know, you had to uh, 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 verify uh, a uh, doctrinal pro- proposition uh, it belonged to the universal ordinary magisterium that way, and if, if it didn't conform, well. Uh, then you were free to reject it. But the uh, theologians in the 19th century pointed out that if you have that interpretation of what Saint Vincent said, that leaves everyone free to, uh, you know, seek out uh, whatever dogmas he uh, wants to believe. You know, you get to decide what dogmas were accepted everywhere, always, and by everyone. So you end up with with a personal judgment.
0: Yes and I would and add
2: the, that the true interpretation of St Vincent is this that that formula what is taught everywhere and always and so forth is a sign of universal magisterium just as smoke is a sign of fire it is not the cause of universal magisterium that, that if you see the church believing something and teaching something everywhere and always that is a sign that it is taught by the pope and bishops because otherwise, you wouldn't have that universality of belief and teaching. So that's a right. very important well, point.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and uh, thank you for that, Lord. And thank you, James, for the uh, the question. I, I hope uh, we're able to answer it for you. Uh, before we do the next question, I just want to do a quick show identification for anyone who's uh, just joining us. You're listening to Clerical Conversations on the Crisis on the Restoration Radio Network and today our topic is uh, Saints, Canonizations, and John Paul II. We've got just under 20 minutes left in the show, so we probably only have time for one or two more questions. So if you have a question, please call in now so that we can deal with it before the end of the show. And the number, if, if you have such a question, is 949 272 9417 Again, that's 949-272-9417. So we have uh, another question from a caller who wasn't able to stay on hold. And uh, he was asking uh, that J.P. John Paul II has referred to, quote, saints, unquote, in non-Catholic religions. Uh, Can uh, you... uh, uh, the lord or father explain this impossibility to those who may take john paul ii at his word
2: well that's obviously impossible because they fail the first test of professing the catholic faith <laughs> you know, uh, you know, the, a saint is someone who must first profess the catholic faith he must live, lead a life of extraordinary virtue and heroic virtue and he is held up as a, an intercessor to God uh, in heaven uh, for us, uh, they fail on all of those counts. Uh, you know, in principle, uh, the someone who is outside the faith uh, is, is considered to have lost his soul. And I say in principle because, uh, yes, it is possible that uh, they be justified interiorly by various acts, Of justification, which I won't go into here, but in principle to to adhere to a false religion means that you are excluded from from heaven. Uh, It's only uh, if you fulfill certain, you know, a whole bunch of conditions and if a whole various things take place that a person outside the Catholic faith could achieve justification and with yet more conditions could achieve salvation uh that that 's a very very exceptional thing, so you know the but to to profess a false religion puts you outside the box right away i mean it 's just ridiculous but we we go back to that modernism you see the these are not false religions for john paul too these are these are uh ways of adhering As spheres as he says, spheres of adhering to the church uh that 's a quote from vatican two and don 't forget that the church for them is not the Roman Catholic church the church is the church of Christ which includes heretics and schismatics and really all of humanity to a greater or lesser extent you have to picture it something like a a target you know where in the middle you have the catholic church which you know in which the church of christ subsists as they say that is the best possible realization of the church of christ and then you have these other Concentric circles going around uh, of spheres of belonging to the church, but it's all part of the Church of Christ, and so the Roman Catholic Church is not exclusively identified with the Church of Christ in the modernist system. So saints in the in the for in non-Catholic religion, sure, why not? You know, they are means of salvation. Okay.
0: As we go through
1: these these different um, horrors, as it were, that that John Paul II has uh, been involved in, you have to keep uh, reminding yourself that a person who's canonized as a saint is supposed to be someone who's held up as a model and as an example for us. And an example for imitation in the following of Christ and, and putting the principles of Uh, the gospel into action. And so you have to ask yourself with uh, all of these uh, efforts of JP2, particularly when it comes to uh, ecumenism, uh, is this worthy of imitation? You know, is it worthy of imitation to uh, kiss the Koran or to, uh, you know, receive the mark of Shiva or to Mm -hmm. praise voodoo? Uh, Or to have a topless young woman read the
2: epistle at Mass, which he did at a papal Mass, and there's a picture of it. it. I mean, is that worthy of imitation? Is that liturgical piety, to have a a woman with no top on reading the epistle? Hmm. I mean, this is uh, absurdity. uh, To canonize this man uh, is a joke. uh,
0: Speaking of voodoo, my lord, we have a question on Twitter from Brian... Uh, saying, I, I still want to know what was in that drink that voodoo people gave him. <laughs>
2: I don't know. I think it was the Polynesians that gave him the drink. Uh,
0: yes, I, so I was don't the think Polynesians. the
2: voodoo gave him anything to drink, uh, but I think the Polynesians gave him a drink that is usually used for curing venereal disease. <laughs> so, so,
1: <laughs> so uh,
0: which, which may uh, bring us to another topic that I think we should deal with quickly, uh, is john paul ii's dealing with the uh the whole pedophilia in the clergy scandal yes and how how does his the way that he dealt with that or didn't deal with that how how is that a a model for Catholics to emulate
2: i think it's one of the the, the most obvious reasons why this man should not be canonized because this In a way, transcends the Catholic faith. I mean, in a way, that is, even a person who's uh, a humanist would say that this deaf ear and hard heart that they turn toward the suffering of these people who are being scarred by this evil clergy, uh, I mean, that, that is repulsive even to nature, that someone would not be alert to those things and would not solve those problems. Uh, Yet, uh, you know, despite many complaints that were going to Rome, and I I know that for a fact uh, that that in the 1980s things were being said to the Roman authorities about this, uh, nothing was done. And, you know, we see what has happened, that that this was, you know, very widespread and and that there were many, many victims that, that have to live with this for the rest of their lives. That alone would exclude him from sanctity uh that alone uh is something that is reprehensible and, and i mean how cold how cold to to not listen to the complaints of those who are are, are suffering this way and and to just busy himself with running around being a pop star uh, well uh, and he made a statement at the end of his life you know to sort of do a mea culpa you know this. I haven't been as strict as I should. <laughs> you know, I could see Captain Smith saying the same thing as, as he's gurgling in in the, <laughs> the Titanic. You know, I I should have paid attention to those telegrams. And, and you know, it, it's just it makes you laugh. And this was supposed to be a type of public confession and, and a miracle that absolved him. Of this deluge uh, of moral turpitude that mm-hmm. that uh, was present and, and uh, from which everyone now suffers. I mean, we are the only priests that wear Roman collars. Everybody else is in shorts and sweatshirts. And all the the perpetrators and, and the the Novus Ordo clergy, for the most part, unless they're very conservative, are in shorts and sweatshirts. Uh, and so people look at us, they see the Roman collar, and and we we, you know they they're you know what they're thinking. I mean it's a terrible thing. The Catholic priest has become a scoundrel in 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 the view of the world because of the negligence of this man and his cold heartedness toward the suffering of young people.
0: Well, we have uh, one more call, uh, and I, I think this is an important one. This is going to be our, our last call because we're getting right close to the end of the show. But we have uh, Benjamin from uh, Massachusetts is calling with a, a question about uh, John Paul II's uh, apparent piety. Brian, Benjamin, uh, thanks for calling. Please go ahead with your question.
4: Uh, thank you, gentlemen. Um, uh, hello, all. I, I do not hold the set of the conscious position myself. Um, but I, I thought I'd address this question. Uh, I apologize I didn't hear much of the earlier uh, uh, passage of the show. I will be listening later. You may have addressed this, uh, addressed this already in part. But I'd like to know um, what are we to make, even uh, admitting into evidence the seeming um, negligence on the part of John Paul II to rein in or reel in um, some of the abuses um Perpetrated by those under him, um, maybe his negligence in in communicating faith and morals in our time, for his own part, what are we to make, despite all that, um, a parent's a um, personal piety, uh, as demonstrated by what we've been what we've been presented as his deep prayer life and his his daily ritual of of rosary recitation, and, and or is it just showmanship? Is it not to be taken into account? Um, is it just a mark of a charlatan? Uh, how would no, you interpret
2: I, that? I, I think that that is an effect of his Polish background. Poland is a very pious place, and I think he was. Uh, I was just in Krakow where he was the bishop. And uh, it's, to this day, very pious. I mean, even despite the Novus Ordo, there's a lot of piety in the Polish people. I think that was just a hangover. You know, his devotion to the Virgin Mary, uh, and it was totally separated from his theology. I think it was an emotional, uh, sentimental thing, and his devotion to the Rosary. But, I mean, that doesn't make him a saint. I mean, that he had, a, a let's say, a, a regular life of prayer and that he said the rosary every day doesn't make you a saint there are plenty of saintly nuns and brothers and priests who have been saying the rosaries every day I mean it's in saintly it's a sense that they're good people and good religious that doesn't mean they're saints and mm-hmm. and piety you know there's, there's no such thing as salvation by faith alone and there's no such thing as salvation by piety alone either it's that, that piety alone doesn't get you to heaven uh, and a lot of people like to substitute piety uh, for true obedience to the commandments and true faith. Uh, as fear is thinking that you know if, if I do all this, uh, I will overcome any other faults that I have and, and that's just not true. You know it, It's almost like buying your way into heaven. The way to heaven is obedience to the commandments. and piety is part of that. But if you detach piety from the faith, and uh, your duties as Roman Pontiff, if, if you have sinned gravely in those things, uh, you—you uh, know—all the piety in the world isn't going to work for you. Uh, so, you know, but uh, you know, John the Twenty-Third had a piety too. He was a thoroughgoing modernist, but he had—if you read Journal of a Soul and uh, you know, he has this this uh, the, the uh, certain favorite Italian saints uh, from uh, from Bergamo and all. I mean, he cultivates them, and but I mean, you read other things that he said and did; they're appalling. So I, I just think it's a departmentalized or compartmentalized aspect of his life. Uh, I really don't think it, it that it saves him, so to speak.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: So piety. Um... Overly um, conjoined with sentimentality is is no real piety.
1: Correct.
2: And if it is not accompanied by faith and obedience to the commandments, there's something wrong with it, actually. It is... Right. Uh, is you know, the, the spiritual authors say it's the spirit of the devil. If you are and neglect uh, if you are in mortal sin objectively or or you know if you're leading a life of mortal sin but you put on all of these acts of piety they call that the spirit of the devil that that you're mm-hmm. you're in some way uh manifesting you know a, a false adherence to god in order to be seen as holy but now you know, is it- True piety will have the effect of making you virtuous, and it did not have the effect of making him virtuous.
4: Might I also um, inquire: Is it to be properly understood theologically that failure to execute one's office as supreme pastor sufficiently um, amounts to mortal sin? Say for for the pope.
1: Absolutely, it does. Yeah, it's yeah. you're talking there about the uh, duties of your state of life and you have the most onerous um, duty in the world which is to be the successor of theater and to shepherd souls and by being lacking uh, in that you are not uh, fulfilling the duties of your state of life in a uh, gravely evil way that's why St. Pius X wept when he was elected Right, because not. he understood <laughs> the
2: the duties of state and life in the papacy. Mm-hmm. Well,
3: well, thank
4: you
0: for addressing my questions, Kevin. and uh, thank you for calling, Benjamin. And uh, just yep. uh, to let our listeners know, we've got about two and a half minutes left on the live stream. So if you're listening live, it'll cut out, but we will keep recording uh, for the last little bit of the show. Uh, so when you download the uh, MP3 podcast which will be available about 5-10 minutes after the show ends, uh, you'll be able to catch whatever you miss at the very end. Uh, we have another question on Twitter, this one from Novus Ordo Watch, and uh, it says, At John Paul II's funeral, Ratzinger said, John Paul II was in heaven blessing us, then why do we need a canonization?
2: Well, I think that was just the general comment of nova Sordo funerals, you know, as I said earlier, you know it, it, you know if you mowed your lawn and kept your flowers nice, uh, you go to heaven, so I think that's what you know they they all get that so but that's not a canonization uh that that's just uh you know it's just a comment of Ratzinger uh, so uh, you know it, you couldn't consider that even even given the the a uh, case where you would say Ratzinger is a true pope. Uh, the fact that, the, for example, uh, Pius VII, excuse me, Piusus 6 said that Louis XVI was a martyr. He said that even in a document, but that is not a canonization. It's a comment that he made. But he was never canonized as a martyr. Hmm. So, so it, it's just a comment, that's all.
0: Well, we're uh, right at the right at the very uh, end of our show, and uh, I think uh, we'll have to do a future show on the other quote canonization unquote that's going to occur at the same time as that of John Paul II, and uh, that being uh, John the Twenty Third. Um, so uh, we'll we'll have to do that in a future show, I think. And, but uh, I just want to. Uh, uh, Thank all our listeners uh, for listening to us, and thank you, of course, to our guests. Um, Just to to wrap up, uh, I would like to reiterate what I said at the beginning of the show, that this uh, Clerical Conversations on the Crisis and all other shows on the Restoration Radio Network are completely funded by our listeners. So I would ask listeners to uh, ask themselves, uh, what was today's show worth to you? Was it worth a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars? Uh, wh- whatever it is, uh, even if it is as small as a dollar, uh, we please uh, uh, consider making a donation to uh, assist us in this apostolate to continue to expand it and um, to uh, continue to add even uh, more content. Uh, please don't leave it to someone else to do a donation. We have thousands of listeners, so even if only 10% of you gave some kind of a donation that can uh, really help to develop and produce even more shows than we currently have. And uh, to do that, you can go to truerestoration.org and click on the Donate button at the bottom of the page. Or you can also support our work by shopping at truerestorationpress.com, which is part of the True Restoration Media Group. Again, that's all one word, truerestorationpress.com. And I would also ask our uh, listeners to consider supporting the uh, works of our two guests. Um, Bishop uh, Sanborn, as I mentioned, is the rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary, carrying on extremely important work there, forming uh, fully Catholic priests, which are uh, such a a rarity today and uh, are very necessary for uh, Catholics to try to attain uh, their salvation through the teaching uh, sanctification and uh, ruling that those priests can offer us. So you can support uh, His Lordship's work by sending a check to Most Holy Trinity Seminary, located at 100 Spring Lake Highway in Brooksville, Florida. It's
2: one thousand.
0: The uh, oh, sorry, one thousand. This Spring yes. Lake Highway, Brooksville, Florida, three four six zero two is the zip code, and. Uh, as for Father uh, Chikata, uh or perhaps before I go to Father Chicada's apostolate, uh, my Lord, uh, for our listeners, um, how, how many seminarians uh, do you have an, the, coming up this fall, or will you have? Uh,
2: if everyone comes who has declared, uh, we will have 14.
0: Now, is that 14 so, new, or 14 total?
2: 14 total. All right. Now, I don't count them till Christmas, though.
0: All right. but And as I understand it, 14 means that you'll be uh, at maximum capacity. Is that right?
2: Yes, yes,
0: that's right. Uh, will, will you per- perhaps even be over capacity and uh, some of them have to stay out in the yard?
2: <laughs> no, but, but it'll be... Father Ciccata might have to stay at the Holiday Inn when he comes up. We might, we might have to
1: resort to that. So If I end up out in the yard, it's with the alligators. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. So, so uh, e- even more reason then for uh, listeners to send donations if they're able uh, to support that work so that they can e- expand and have even more uh, seminarians being formed uh, as future priests. Father Chacada, as I mentioned, as well as being a part-time professor at the seminary, uh, also works at St. Gertrude the Great Church in West Chester, Ohio, and uh, is. uh, I haven't checked recently. There's a donate button at sggresources.org. Is that am I correct? Uh, Yes,
1: indeed, there is, Uh, and we encourage you to use it.
0: Yeah, so please do that, or if you prefer a more old-fashioned method, uh, I think you can just send a check to the church itself, which is uh, 4900 Rialto, R-I-A-L-T-O Road, West Chester, Ohio, 45069, or or again, sggresources.org, and you can donate there. And I would like to thank our, the benefactors that we've had this past week. We had a number of uh, donations. So uh, thank you uh, to those listeners, and thank you in advance to uh, any other listeners who help support us in the future. And uh, again, I would just like to uh, thank, uh, extend my thanks to uh, Bishop Sanborn and Father Chicada for uh, joining us for another a uh, very informative and uh, helpful discussion on clerical conversations on the, on the crisis. Well, oh, thank you. Thank you. And uh, so with that we'll we'll sign off and uh with uh, a little bit of S Petrus